Section four of the Elements of Botany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Elements of Botany by William Ruschenberger. Lesson three, part two. Examples of compound leaves. Compound leaves may be referred to two classes or divisions one containing digitate, and the other pinnate leaves. Accordingly, as they are supposed to resemble fingers, digitus, or feathered stems, pinnatus. First, of digitate leaves. A conjugate or binate leaf, figure 58, conjugate from the Latin conjugatum, which is formed from con, together, and jugum, a yoke, yoked together. Binate, from the Latin bis, two, and natus grown when a common petiole bears two leaflets on its summit a ternate leaf folium ternatum figure fifty nine from the latin ternus three and three when three leaflets arise from one petiole example the trifolium pretense red clover biternate twice three leaved the petiole divided into three parts and each part bearing three leaflets. Triternate, three times three-leaved, a common petiole divided into three parts, and each of these parts subdivided into three, and each subdivision bearing three leaflets, as in the windflower. A ternate leaf, which is also doubly serrate, figure 60, that is, folium ternatum, folius duplicato serratus, a ternate leaf, with doubly serrate leaflets, as in Indian psychic, Spirea trifoliata, a quaternate leaf, folium quaternatum, figure 61, from the Latin quater, four, having four leaflets growing from a common petiole or leaf stalk, a quinquifoliate or quinate leaf, folium quinquifoliatum, figure 62, from the Latin quinqua, five, and folium, leaf, having five leaflets growing from one common petiole. Example, ginseng, panax quinquifolium. Panax is derived from the Greek pan, all, and echos, a remedy, a remedy for all things. It is an almost universal medicine among the Tartars and Chinese, and according to them, it is capable of relieving fatigue of both body and mind. It is a native of North America, where it is not esteemed as a medicine. A digitate leaf, folium digitatum, figure 63, composed of seven leaflets, an example of which is afforded in the perennial lupin, which is common in the neighborhood of Philadelphia. Digitate, from the Latin digitus, a finger, compared to the spread of fingers of a hand. When several leaflets arise from the very summit of the petiole, as in the horse chestnut tree and high blackberry. The second division of compound leaves called pinnate. A pinnate leaf, folium pinnatum, figure 64, from the Latin pinnatus, winged or feathered, having leaflets arranged along each side of a common petiole, like the feather of a quill. A bipinnate leaf, folium bipinnatum, figure 65, as that of the mimosa farnesiana, doubly winged, a common petiole bearing pinnate leaves on each one of its sides. Most of the acacia tribe have bipinnate leaves. Bipinnate, 
from the Latin bis, two, and pinna, wing, two-winged. A bipinnate leaf, folium bipinnatum. We have examples of leaves of this kind in the pride of China, melia azidirach. Here the leaflets of the secondary petiole are unequally pinnate. See figure 70. A tripinnate leaf, folium tripinnatum, figure 67, from the Latin trace, three, and pinna, wing, conium maculatum, common hemlock, common in many parts of the United States, when the common petiole has bipinnate leaves on each side. A pinnate leaf with bijugate leaves, figure 68, folium pinnatum, foliolus bijugus, from the Latin bis, two, and jugum, yoke, formed of two pairs of leaflets, as seen in the cassia abscess of India and Egypt. An abruptly pinnate leaf, when the petiole of a winged leaf ends without a leaflet or tendril, as in the American senna, it is abruptly pinnate. When the leaflets of the opposite sides alternate, it is alternately pinnate. And when the leaflets are alternatively large and small, it is interruptedly pinnate. When the leaflets are opposite or in pairs, as in the annexed figure, 69, it is oppositely pinnate. An unequally pinnate leaf, folium imperi pinnatum, figure 70. Example, the shellbark hickory. When a pinnate or winged leaf is terminated by a single leaflet, as roses, etc., it is equally pinnate, because the pinnae, or leaflets, are not of an even or equal number. When the leaflets are cut in fine, divaricated segments, embracing the footstalk, we have the verticillato pinnate leaf. The lyrato pinnate, quote, in a lyrate manner, having the terminal leaflet largest, and the rest gradually smaller, as they approach the base, like erysium praecox, and with intermediate smaller leaflets, gium rivali, also the common turnip. Such leaves are usually dominated lyrate, in common with those properly so called, whose shape is simple and not formed of separate leaflets. Nor is this from inaccuracy in botanical writers. The reason is that these two kinds of leaves, however distinct in theory, are of all leaves most liable to run into each other, even on the same plant. End quote. Smith. A seroso pinnate leaf, folium seroso pinnatum, figure 71, from the Latin cirrus, a tendril, a climber. Example, the tamarind tree, tamarindus indica. In this form of leaf, a tendril supplies the place of the odd leaflet, as in the pea and vetch tribe, constituting the remarkable difference between it and the unequally pinnate leaf, figure 70. A pedate leaf, folium pedatum, figure 72, from the Latin pes, in the genitive case, pedis, foot. A compound leaf, the divisions of which give it a resemblance to a foot with outspread toes. This is an example of the pedalinerf leaf, see page 39, in which there is no decided midrib, but the vessels diverge in two strong lateral nerves, from which branches are given off, on that side only, which is towards the apex of the leaf. Example, Heliborus fetidus. A pedate leaf with compound leaflets, folium pedatum, folius compositus. Example, the maidenhair, adiantum pedatum a very common plant in the neighborhood of Philadelphia. The most singular of all the various leaves are those of the pitcher plants. The pitcher of the Nepenthes, 74, C, 
is provided with a perfect lid or cover, which is closed in dry weather as if to prevent evaporation, and open when it is rainy or damp. It has been suggested that these pitchers were designed as reservoirs in which water is stored for the occasional use of the plant in extremely dry weather. When the petiole becomes dilated and hollowed out at its upper end, the lamina being articulated with and closing up its orifice, as in Saracenia, figure 74a, and Nepenthes, figure 74c, it is called a pitcher, or a scidium. If it is enclosed, and is a mere sac, as in Urticularia, figure 74b, it is called ampulla. The surface of a leaf may be ribbed or nerved, having fine elevations, running from one extremity to the other without branching, or veined, having prominent divisions near the base, and finer and smaller as they extend over the leaf, as in the mulline, or wrinkled, rugose, rough, or corrugated, like the leaf of the sage, or plicate, plaited, having a surface formed into ridges and channels, by the alternate rising and sinking of the nerves of the leaf, or smooth, when, without wrinkles or ribs, or villose, or velvety, when covered by soft down or hairs. Besides the general form, the character of the margin and surface of the leaves, their position is also described. When upright, and the leaf forms a very acute angle with the stem, it is erect. When they are at right angles with the stems, and parallel with the horizon, they are horizontal. When the apex of the leaf hangs lower than the insertion of the petiole, it is reclined. When the base of the leaf is turned in one direction, and the apex in another, that is twisted, it is oblique. Radical leaves are those which grow very near to the root. When leaves arise, one after the other, from opposite sides of the stem, they are alternate. But when they arise on the same line, from opposite sides of the stem, they are opposite. When they grow in a circle around a stem, they are verticulate, whorled, or stellate. Exhalation 30. When treating of absorption, we saw that vascular plants pump up by their roots a considerable quantity of water, holding different matters in solution, and that this liquid rises through the stem to reach the leaves. But all the water thus absorbed does not remain in the interior of the plant, and a great part is dissipated in the form of vapor. To satisfy ourselves on this point, it is only necessary to place, in a perfectly dry glass jar, the leafy stem of a vegetating plant, and expose the whole to the sun. We soon discover little drops, which arrange themselves on the parities of the jar. By weighing plants immediately after they have been watered, and weighing them again some time afterwards, we obtain proof of this loss, and we may exactly estimate the quantity of water exhaled. It was found by an experiment of this kind that a cabbage lost by evaporation nineteen ounces of water a day, and a helianthus, from the Greek, Elios, the sun, and anthos flower, or sunflower, loses even a more considerable quantity in form of vapor. 31. A small part of the water thus expelled evaporates through the tissue which constitutes the surface of all parts of the plant, as well after death as during life. And it is for this reason that the stem, fruit, tubercles, and flowers terminate their existence by drying, when the place in which they may be is not very damp. But the greatest quantity of water is expelled through the leaves of the living plant, and this exhalation only takes place while the plant is alive, and when the influence of light 
causes the stomata to open. It has been ascertained that the quantity of water thus exhaled is in proportion to the extent of the leafy surface of the plant and the number of stomata. Thus, fleshy plants, which have but few stomata, lose very little by aqueous exhalation. 32. Light, as we have said, has the property of causing the stomata to open, but these orifices close when the plant is placed in the dark. During the night, plants lose very little by evaporation, and it is known that the best way of preserving a bouquet as fresh as possible is to put it in an obscure place, or at least shelter it from the light of the sun. 33. Exhalation is more active in dry, warm air than when the atmosphere is cold and damp, and it takes place more actively in young leaves than in those of which the surface has been hardened by age. The water that thus escapes is almost pure, and it is estimated that, under ordinary circumstances, it is equal to about two-thirds of the quantity of liquid absorbed by the roots. Sometimes this exhalation becomes even more abundant than absorption, and causes the death of the plant. This often happens when we transplant a tree in spring, without taking sufficient care to lop the branches, or by taking it from the earth we destroy a great many radicals of the root, and absorption is consequently less active. In order to proportion the exhalation to this enfeebled absorption, gardeners leave but a small number of leaves on the summit of the stem. Respiration 34. Plants cannot live when deprived of air, and are, just as much as animals, under the necessity of constant respiration. But their respiration is carried on in a different manner from that of animals. 35. All parts of the plant, root, stem, and flowers, as well as the leaves, continually absorb a certain amount of oxygen from the air, which combines with the carbonous particles of the sap, and thus forms carbonic acid. But this carbonic acid is not expelled as in animals, but serves for nutrition. Parenthetic remark. Before we proceed further, let us endeavor to obtain clear notions of the meaning of the words oxygen and carbonic acid. The air we breathe, called atmospheric air, is a compound of about one part of oxygen gas to four parts of nitrogen gas, and a very much smaller proportion of carbonic acid gas, together with some watery vapor. Oxygen and nitrogen are simple substances, that is, chemists have not been able to decompose them. But carbonic acid gas is a compound substance, that is, it consists of more than one material or substance. This name, oxygen, is formed from the Greek oxus, acid, and gynomai, I beget, and was so called because it was believed without it there could be no acid. Although there are acids which contain no oxygen, we know that without its presence, every living thing, animal or plant, would die, and all fire would be extinguished. It is indispensable to respiration and combustion. The word nitrogen was formed from the Greek nitron, nitre, and gynomai, I beget, because it was discovered to be one of the essential constituents of nitre, and also of nitric acid. It was also called azote from a, privative, and zoe, life because it would not support animal life. Carbonic acid consists of carbon and oxygen. Carbon, from the Latin carbo, coal, is the name of a simple substance or element. It occurs naturally in the form of the diamond, which is pure carbon, of plumbago or black lead, anthracite, and bituminous coals. It is an elementary constituent of all wood. It seems to be the true food of plants, 
without which they die. Lamp black and charcoal are forms of impure carbon. The chief action of vegetable organization is to obtain and form carbon. Carbonic acid exists in the atmosphere as the product of combustion, and of the respiration of animals, the frothing of beer, and the sparkling of champagne and mineral water, depending on its presence. 36. The leaves and other green parts of plants also absorb the carbonic acid gas contained in the air, and, by the process of respiration, this fluid, as well as the carbonic acid formed in the interior of the plant, is decomposed. Its carbon remains in the tissue of the plant and nourishes it, while the oxygen is thrown off and mingles with the atmosphere. 37. We now see that the relations of plants with the air are more complicated than those of animals with the same fluid. The latter absorb oxygen, and in its place exhale carbonic acid. Plants absorb oxygen and carbonic acid, and exhale oxygen, arising either from the quantity of this gas previously absorbed, or from the decomposition of the carbonic acid derived from the atmosphere. 38. In general, it is the last phenomenon, that is, the absorption of carbonic acid, its decomposition, and the exhalation of oxygen, that is designated under the name of respiration of plants. Its effect, as we see, is to destroy the carbonic acid, which the respiration of animals is unceasingly diffusing through the air, and consequently to purify the atmosphere. 39. The green parts alone possess the property of decomposing carbonic acid in this way, and they cannot effect this decomposition without the direct influence of the light of the sun. Thus, a plant which is put in an obscure place ceases to respire, languishes, bleaches, and dies, after a shorter or longer time. 40. Consequently, the leaves are the principal seat of respiration, and this function is only carried on during the day. 41. It is easy to demonstrate the influence of light upon the respiration of plants. A simple experiment is sufficient to do this. If we place leaves in water, containing a small quantity of carbonic acid in solution, and expose them to the sun, we see bubbles of air rise from them. But if we place them in the shade, this disengagement of gas is arrested. 42. In leaves exposed to the air, the absorption of carbonic acid takes place chiefly through the stomata, and this fluid acts upon the sap in the interior of the cavities, which exist in the parenchyma of the leaf and abandons its carbon to pass the state of free oxygen. The intercellular passages, metus, of the leaves, consequently perform, in the respiration of plants, functions analogous to those of the pulmonary cells in terrestrial animals. And it is remarkable that in aquatic plants, the leaves of which are submerged, there are no similar cavities, and respiration is carried on by the surface of the leaves, just in the same manner as the skin or projecting branchiae perform this function in aquatic animals. 43. During the night, the leaves, instead of purifying the air, absorb oxygen, and consequently contribute towards its vitiation. For this reason, as well as on account of the odor they exhale, it is often dangerous to place plants, or even bouquets of flowers, in sleeping apartments. 44. The absorption of oxygen by the parts of plants that are not green is feeble, but it takes place by day as well as by night, and it is necessary to the life of all plants. It is because roots do not obtain the air which they require that they die when too deeply buried, 
and it is for the same reason that a seed will not germinate when removed from the action of the atmosphere. Of the use and mode of distribution of the nutritive juices. 45. The sap, elaborated in the leaves, as we have seen, again descends to other parts of the plant, and constitutes the nutritive juice by the aid of which its growth is effected. 46. It is easy to be convinced that the nutritive juices of plants are formed in the leaves, for, if we strip a tree of all its leaves, it will cease to grow until it is furnished anew with these organs, and farmers who cultivate mulberries for feeding silkworms have remarked that the growth of the trees is less in proportion to this frequency of stripping them of their leaves. 47. The movement of the nutritive juice, that is, the descending sap, is slow, and always takes place from the leaves toward the roots, whatever may be the position of the branches that this liquid traverses. 48. The root followed by the descending sap is not the same as that by which the sap rises from the roots to the leaves. Instead of traversing the ligneous layers, it descends chiefly through the substance of the bark. 49. The following experiment proves that it is the descending sap, which especially serves for the nutrition of the plant, and that this same sap moves in the interior of the bark. If we remove from a branch or the trunk of an exogenous tree a circular strip of bark, we prevent the sap that descends from the leaves to the lower part of the plant from continuing its root, and, in fact, we see that the portion of the stem which is below this annular or ring-like section ceases to grow, while the part situate above profits more than usual, and swells out on the upper margin of the wound, so as to form a ring. The same thing happens when we surround a branch by a very tightly drawn cord, for in this way we may also arrest the descending sap, and the parts where this juice accumulates are benefited at the expense of those situated below. 50. For this reason, gardeners sometimes make annular incisions through the whole thickness of the bark around a branch filled with fruit, so as to retain the nutritive juice and augment the size of the fruit. 51. The greater part of the descending sap is found, as we have before stated, in the bark, but it appears that this liquid also traverses the young layers of the alburnum, and it is by its action that we explain the transformation of this alburnum into perfect wood, or duramen, duramen, Latin, hardening. 52. The descending sap appears to be chiefly composed of water, holding gum, and some other substances in solution. It must be regarded as the chief source from which the plant derives the materials composing, first, the excreted products, second, the peculiar juices secreted in the different organs and designed to remain in the interior of the plant, third, the new tissues. We shall now study these phenomena successively in order. Of secretions, plants, as well as animals, form in certain parts of their bodies peculiar liquids, which differ from the generally diffused juices. And it is to this process, by which these peculiar fluids are formed, as well as to the liquids themselves, that we give the name of secretion. Footnote. Secretion, from the Latin cesernere, to separate. The process by which organic structure is enabled to separate, from the fluids circulating in it, other different fluids. The function of secretion is usually performed by glands, and each gland secretes a peculiar fluid, according to its structure. For example, the liver secretes bile, 
that is, it separates from the blood circulating in the liver the materials which it forms into bile. The salivary glands secrete saliva, and the mammary glands in females secrete milk, etc. Now bile, saliva, and milk are also termed secretions. 54. The matters secreted may be thrown out or expelled, or they may be destined to remain in the interior of the plant and subserve the purposes of nutrition or some other function. 55. The matters that plants excrete in this way are very various. A great many plants produce in reservoirs, situate near the external surface, volatile oils that evaporate through the tissue and diffuse themselves through the air. The odor of flowers, and also of certain leaves, depends in a great measure upon this exhalation. It is also to an emanation of this kind that is due a singular phenomenon present in a plant named Fraxinella, which in hot days exhales an essential oil in such abundance that if it be approached with a light, the vapor with which the plant is surrounded takes fire and burns, like that we force out of an orange or lemon skin by pressure into the flame of a candle. Other plants secrete a caustic juice, which is frequently poured out through hollow hairs, and thus produces a lively irritation at the bottom of punctures made by these hairs. The nettle is an example of this kind. Again, we have wax secreted by the leaves or epidermis of young branches, and afterwards expelled, and we have also produced in this way gluey, acid, saline, sugary, and other secretions. 56. These excretions are formed by the roots as well as by the leaves, and as the matters thus expelled are of a nature that is injurious to the plant which produced them, we understand through the knowledge of this fact why plants of the same species do not flourish when kept for a long time in the same soil. For the matters expelled by the roots are deposited in the earth surrounding them, and are again absorbed by the plants growing in it. But the matters expelled by one plant may often be suitable nourishment for a plant of another species, and it is for this reason that the ground often becomes fitted for certain culture when it has been previously made to produce plants in which the excretion by the roots is abundant. The art of assolement, or succession of crops, so important in agriculture, is chiefly based upon the results depending on this excretion by the roots. We give the name of assolement to the succession in the same soil of different crops, combined in such a manner as to produce as largely as possible, and we say triennial, quatrennial, assolement, etc., according as the cultivation of the same plant recurs every three, every four years, etc. 57. The liquids secreted by plants, and designed to remain in the interior of their organs, are designated under the name of proper juices. If they escape externally, it is altogether by accident, and their production appears to be useful to the health of the plant that forms them. These juices are sometimes milky, sometimes resinous, sometimes composed of essential oils, and at other times formed of fatty matters. 58. The milky juices are chiefly found in the bark, and appear to constitute the liquid we see circulating in the vessels of the latex in a great number of plants. The white liquid that runs from the fig tree when it is cut, opium, caoutchouc, india rubber, etc., are juices belonging to this class. 59. The resinous juices are very common in the bark, and are also met with in other parts of the stem. 
they are formed in little masses which become united together and descend by their own weight in the tissue of the plant sometimes these juices are so abundant that by making an incision in the tree we cause a stream to flow out of it and in this way we collect considerable quantities of its proper juices as we see in pine and fir trees 60 the essential or volatile oils are contained in cells or vesicles and are found in the foliaceous or cortical parts of plants and the proper juices constituted of fatty oils are chiefly found in the seeds 61 the solid matter found in the elongated cells of the wood and on this account called lignin from the latin lignum wood may also be considered as being the product of a species of secretion as well as the fecula which is produced in great abundance in certain parts of plants seemingly forming deposits of nutritive matter destined at a future time for the nourishment of the plant this last substance has the appearance of small white hard grains which seem to be composed of different layers the exterior of which are hardest and the most internal are similar to gum it is found isolated in the cells of the cellular tissue and in some parts of certain plants such as the seeds of wheat or of rye the tubers of the potato the ligneous stems of monocotyledonous plants etc it forms considerable masses of the growth of plants 62 the growth of plants depends upon two phenomena first the increase of the diameter of stems already formed second the development and elongation of new branches we will successively examine both 63 the cellular tissue of plants while it is still young and receives a sufficient quantity of nutritious juices gives rise to new cells which are at first very small isolated and soft but which in proportion as they are developed and large and harden and become as closely united to each other as to the cellular tissue upon the surface of which they are formed those cells which have ceased to grow no longer possess the power of giving rise in this way to new tissue they become strongly joined to the young cells with which they are in contact and hence it is that the growth of plants takes place only from the surface of the most recently formed parts 64 in exogenous plants the new tissue is thus deposited between the alburnum and the bark and it first appears in the form of a viscid matter which is called cambium those tissues which arise from the alburnum form around the ligneous body or wood of the stem a new layer of alburnum exterior to all those that have been already deposited and those which arise from the bark constitute a new cortical layer within the layers of bark already formed each of these layers increases in thickness for a certain time then ceases to grow and at the end of a certain period in its turn produces a new layer 65 perennial exogenous plants in this way form a new layer of wood and of bark every year and if we cut through the stem of a tree transversely we may see the number of zones or rings of which it is composed and thus count the number of years it has lived 66 the thickness of these layers varies in different plants and also varies in the same tree according to its age the richness of the soil in which it grows 
and the abundance of its leaves, etc. Trees grow most rapidly during the first years of their existence, and it is observed that in old trees the most external ligneous layers are thinnest. When the soil that surrounds the foot of a tree is more favorable to vegetation on one side than on the other, the roots become unequally developed, and on the side where the largest roots are found are also found the largest branches and the thickest ligneous layers. 67. The new ligneous and cortical layers are not restricted to covering the surface of the plant, but are prolonged beyond it, and, at different points, form lateral expansions which constitute the new branches. These young shoots are, in general, protected in their first growth by peculiar scales, and then constitute what are called buds. They are ordinarily found at the base of the petioles of the leaves, or at the extremity of the branches in ligneous plants, and at the column, or neck, of the root in perennial herbaceous plants. Sometimes they are not apparent externally, and are concealed even in the substance of the wood, but in most instances they have the form of a small projecting tubercle, which shows itself in the summer, and is known to farmers under the name of eye. During the winter they enlarge, and in spring, when the sap begins to rise with strength, and to carry toward the extremity of the branches the nutritive matters previously deposited in the roots, or in the stem, they rapidly develop themselves. Their scales separate, and we see a young branch spring from them, the leaves of which are at first variously plaited and very close together. This new shoot grows more rapidly in proportion to the abundance of the sap, and during a certain time is elongated throughout its length. But after the first year it ceases to grow in this way, and it then forms laterally, and particularly toward its upper part, new layers of vegetable tissue, which contribute to the increase of the length of its extremity, and at the same time to augment the diameter of its base. 68. In endogenous trees, growth takes place very nearly in the same manner. Only the new parts do not form concentric layers, but simply bundles fasciculi, of fibers variously arranged, and the buds are ordinarily developed at the extremity of the stem and branches. 69. We have said above that the cells of the cellular tissue, when very young, tend to become united or soldered to each other. This is so true that if we lay bare a portion of new tissue of two neighboring trees and bring these parts together and keep them in contact, they become so intimately united that the two soon form a single body, and possess one life in common. The art of grafting plants depends upon a knowledge of this fact. Parenthetic Remark Grafting is an operation by which one plant is joined to another in vital union, in such a manner as to form one. The tree upon which grafting is practiced is called the stalk, and the branch or rudiment of a branch that is fitted to it is named the graft. The stalk is ordinarily a wild shrub, and the graft a cultivated variety of the same plant. In order to succeed, the alburnum of the graft must accurately fit, through the greatest part of its extent, that of the stalk, that is, the tree upon which the graft is implanted. Then the junction, or as it were soldering, of the two barks is effected by the assistance of the cambium. One condition necessary to the success of the operation is that the sap of the two plants shall be similar. 
for example, the plants of the same genus or of the same family, are more readily grafted upon each other than those which belong to different families. Grafting is a very useful operation in agriculture. It serves to preserve and multiply varieties, which could not be produced by means of seeds. It saves time by procuring a great number of trees, which are with difficulty multiplied by other means, and accelerates by many years the fructification of certain plants. Gardeners employ five or six different processes to obtain the development of the bud or graft upon the bark of other trees which they use as stalks. Splice or whip grafting consists in paring down in a slanting direction both the graft and stalk and, after applying them neatly to each other, securing them by strands of bast matting, in the same manner as two pieces of rod are spliced together to form a whip handle. The part is afterwards covered with tempered clay, or any convenient composition that will exclude the air. Grafting by approach, or in-arching, is a mode of grafting in which, to make sure of success, the graft or scion is not separated from the parent plant until it has become united to the stalk. End of parenthetic remark. 70. Such are the principal phenomena of the life of nutrition in plants but they are far from taking place with the same intensity at all times, and their duration is extremely variable. 71. In every plant we observe periods of activity, of languor, and even torpor, and then an augmentation of the vegetative functions. In our climate these periods correspond with the four seasons of the year. During winter the cold and absence of the leaves in most plants almost entirely arrests nutrition. They are then in a state of torpor, comparable to that which hibernating animals experience, and their buds and roots alone continue to grow. But when returning spring imparts to the plant, thus benumbed, a certain amount of heat and moisture, it awakes in a measure, the sap rises with force, the buds develop themselves, the young shoots or scions become elongated, and vegetation displays all its activity. In summer, the leaves are somewhat hardened, and become less suited for attracting the sap and exhaling the liquids which reach them from the roots. Consequently, vegetation is less active, and in autumn this change in the leaves being greater gradually brings about their destruction or fall. At this period, it sometimes happens that buds begin to develop themselves and again attract the sap with force and this ascent of the nutritive juices causes an elongation of the branches and the formation of new leaves, the freshness of which is in beautiful contrast with the yellow tint of the old ones. But the cold soon enfeebles all these phenomena of life and arrests nutrition, even when it does not cause the fall of the leaves, as ordinarily happens. 72. In hot countries, where there is no winter properly speaking, there are nevertheless periods of activity and repose in plants, which correspond to the dry and wet or rainy season. There, the great heat arrests vegetation, as the cold does in our climate, and the life of plants is reanimated in the rainy season. 73. As we have already stated, a great number of plants are annual, that is, they live only through one year. Others complete their growth only in the second year, and die on the approach of the second winter, and are termed biennial. Others again continue to live many years, 
and are for this reason called perennial plants. All herbaceous plants are annual or biennial. Ligneous plants live many years, and the duration of their lives exceeds everything we could imagine. One of the orange trees at Versailles in France appears to be nearly 400 years old, and a tree of the same species, which may still be seen at the convent of St. Sabin and Rhone, was planted there by St. Dominic more than 600 years ago. In Switzerland, there are linden trees which, to judge from their diameter and the manner in which these trees ordinarily grow, ought to be more than a thousand years old. And there is a chestnut tree at Sancerre, which was known 600 years ago as the Great Chestnut, from which we may conclude that its age is not much less than that of the lindens we have just mentioned. But the tree most celebrated on account of its longevity is, unquestionably, the Baobab, that flourishes in Senegal. A botanist named Adenson notices one which three centuries before had been observed by two English travelers, and on excavating the trunk of this tree, there was found an inscription they had written, covered by three hundred ligneous layers. From this they were able to judge how much this gigantic plant had grown in three hundred years, and, comparing this with the diameter of the tree, it was estimated that the probable duration of its existence was upwards of five thousand years. End of Lesson 3, Part 2